0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and on this episode, I will be interviewing Ruth Ware. This is the second time she will be on this podcast. Catherine and I had such a wonderful time talking to her a couple of years ago that I could not resist having her on again. I am just going to get right to the interview because it's a really good one. Two years ago, back in May of 2020, to be exact, Catherine and I were lucky enough to interview my guest today. At that point in her career, Ruth Ware had written five best selling psychological crime thrillers in five years, including The Woman in Cabin 10 and The Turn of the Key. Since then, she's written two more, one by one, which came out in 2020. And this year's offering, The It Girl. As noted by her editor in a little prefatory note to the advanced reader copy I obtained in advance of this interview, she actually did not publish a book in 2021, but I suppose we can forgive her for that given there was a, you know, a pandemic going on and all. We'll be focusing on the it girl for this conversation, which is due out very shortly on July 12th in the US and August 4th in the UK. I know that Catherine was specifically looking forward to having you back on Ruth. So I'm just going to have to be extra enthusiastic on my own behalf and on hers as well. Welcome back.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me back. It's such a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, just uh, wish Catherine could have been here too.
0: I'd love to give listeners a general sense of what the It Girl is about. You are probably tired of having to summarize it. So why don't I give it a shot? And then you can let me know if I got anything wrong. That would be amazing.
1: And then I can totally plagiarize your uh, your (laughs) version if it's better than mine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that will be the case, but here goes. The story is bifurcated between alternating before and after sections. The schismatic event being the murder of April Clark Cliveden, our titular it girl. April is a charismatic and beautiful and extremely clever first year undergraduate student at the fictional Pelham College in Oxford University. The story is told from the perspective of April's roommate, Hannah Jones, who's a bit of an outsider at Oxford, having come from more of a working class background. And Hannah was instrumental in the arrest and subsequent conviction of April's would-be murderer, a porter at Pelham College named John Neville. But when the book opens, John Neville has just died in prison and he has protested his innocence till his dying day. And there is this journalist slash podcaster actually, uh, who approaches Hannah with doubts about Neville's guilt. And those are doubts that Hannah herself harbors. So, obviously, there's an amateur investigation that ensues, which focuses on the group of friends surrounding April who lived together that first year at Pelham, all of whom may have had a motive to kill her. Beyond Hannah, there's Emily, an extremely driven and ambitious math or maths major, I should say. Will, who is April's posh boyfriend, who later becomes Hannah's husband, which is interesting. Uh, There's Hugh, also fairly posh, though much more socially awkward and what we would call a pre-med major here in the States. His major is medicine and he does indeed become a doctor. And then finally, we have Ryan, who is more of a rough and tumble northerner, a a little bit of comic relief. I'm tempted to compare these six friends to the iconic friends of hit TV fame because I know Catherine would absolutely be doing that <laughs> if she were here. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just get, give into that temptation and see what you think, Ruth. We're we're just going to take.
1: Yeah, I'm matching them up in my head now. I'm going to see if yours is the same as mine. <laughs> okay,
0: okay, because actually, I actually have some thoughts here. So we're yeah, we're we're going off on a little tangent, listeners here on the summary, but that's okay. Emily is obviously the Monica. Yes. I think Will has to be the Ross. I would say Hannah is the Rachel and Ryan is the Chandler for sure. Here is where I start running out of steam because that would make Hugh the Joey and April the Phoebe. And that is definitely not quite right. I actually feel like Emily is kind of the Monica and the Phoebe and that April and Hannah are both different aspects of Rachel. (laughs) Um, you can see I thought a lot this about is this. This getting very then...
1: psychological. I think <laughs> I think I would have said Hugh was Ross because he's got the social awkwardness and the sort of scholarliness. Okay, um, Will okay. is Chandler because he's like charming, he's quite funny, he's quite good with women, he's quite confident, and Ryan is the Joey because he's like the sort of charming kind of joker who's like the comic relief, as you said.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's he's like the cut up, right?
1: Yeah. Whereas the the women. You Yeah, much harder. I don't think they map super well. I I would say that April is Rachel because they're both kind of the golden girl that you sort of want to be with the great hair and the, you know, the fantastic wardrobe kind of thing. The other two, I don't, yeah, I don't know if they really like nobody's Phoebe. Nobody's that kind of (laughs) bay and weird.
0: (laughs) No, no one's Phoebe. I, you know, I don't know if Phoebe really has a place in a psychological crime thriller. So fair enough.
1: (laughs) And Emily is like, Emily is tough in a way that I don't think any of the Friends characters are. She does not suffer fools gladly. She's the kind of person who, if she thinks you're an idiot, she's going to come out and say it. And I'm not sure all of the Friends characters are just quintessential essentially a lot nicer than that, so...
0: Right, that's why I definitely. I mean, if anything, she's the Monica, just because Monica, you know, the sort of OCD and kind of yeah. blunt, blunt way that she has about her. She it, she's probably the toughest within a group that is not very tough collectively. Yeah. Or that's yeah. that's true. Fair point. Um,
1: I enjoyed do, that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that it is six friends, you know, and that we. It's just such a. I, I think an iconic grouping, and I think even in the in that that lovely letter, by the way, which your editor included in the in the advance reader copy, which you don't get very often. I mean, clearly your editor really believes in this book and loves it, but they mentioned the big chill as well. We have echoes of those sorts of stories, which are always a lot of fun, especially in a mystery. I thought that the book was really elegantly structured because the before and after alternates for about the first two thirds of the story, at which point April's murder happens. And then we're just in after territory. And that's when the action really ramps up. And this book has a propulsive ending with lots of peril for our protagonist, Hannah, who I should also mention is about six months pregnant for the duration of the present day parts of the story. She and Will. yeah, Which was a
1: plotting headache because obviously I had to, every time I, I was like, how many weeks would she be now?
0: <laughs> right. it, it definitely tracks. I mean, there's a real progression in her pregnancy. And I know from our first interview, actually, I, I know that you have children yourself. I mean, you can tell that this is something that you you know about. I actually really appreciated that. You also do not shy away from putting your pregnant character in peril. And there are some very stressful moments toward the end of this book when some not so wonderful things happen to our pregnant protagonist. I was very stressed out, Ruth.
1: Good. <laughs> I'm glad he was supposed to be and yeah that was I think that was one of the harder aspects writing it because Hannah she's going to be a new mum and she arguably should be taking better care of herself than she is so I was kind of aware of balancing that like her responsibility that she feels to her friend and to finding out the truth with the responsibility that she also feels towards her unborn child There was definitely competing things there and, and I'm sure some readers are going to come down on one side or another.
0: Yes, yes. Well, it just, it, it kind of adds, I think, to uh, the heightened tension that you want at the end of one of these books in, in an interesting way. At one point she's even compared to a pregnant Miss Marple, um, <laughs> which I thought was a fantastic reference. I know that you don't do series long characters, but if you did, I think you may have just landed on who <laughs> you're Pregnant Miss
1: Marple. I'd have trouble keeping her pregnant for book after book though, wouldn't I? I? <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: She so could just have a new child, you know, in in every book. It's like, oh, well, here, here I am again, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> another baby, another mystery.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. To wrap up what has now been a very rambling summary on my part, we do, of course, find out who done it in the end. And it is surprising and puzzle though wrapped up in the trappings of a modern day psychological thriller, which is what you do so well. Does that give a fair sense of, of what is going on in the It Girl? God, I think that
1: was amazing. When I'm asked to summarize it, I used to get in a flap and do about sort of four lines and like, oh, it's uh, like um, dark academia with like a bookseller. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so
1: no, you did a really good job. I think you hit all of the important beats of the plot. I couldn't do a better job. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I should also mention that while the before sections, of course, take place in Oxford, the present day story is set in Edinburgh and there's a lot of scene setting in and around the city. Lots of bookshops and cafes and restaurants with hills and castles in the background and whatnot. I'm curious why you chose Edinburgh. Have you spent a lot of time there?
1: Well, I love it as a city. I have been there quite a number of times. There's um, a very good book festival called the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which if people are ever in Edinburgh in August, it is a lovely place to summer. If you are like me, uh, someone who does not do well in the heat, because Edinburgh is very chilly year round and rainy, which is it uh, <laughs> gets some sun in August. But, you know, you're never going to be too hot. Uh, So, yeah, and I've been to the book festival many times. I love Edinburgh as a place to hang out. But I suppose partly I was thinking about it from Hannah's perspective that Oxford is in sort of, it's not as far south as you can get in the UK, but it's definitely towards the south. It's sort of parallel with London. Um, And if something terrible happened to me, I think I would want to get as far away as possible from that place and edinburgh is you know it's it's not quite as far as you could get like you could go to aberdeen i guess which is even further north but it's like it's a big beautiful city it's large enough to disappear into in a way that some of the kind of highland cities aren't and it's about as far as you can get from Oxford without falling into the sea while still being in a sort of major capital city and it's in a different country with you know different newspapers different media different laws different politicians so it just I don't know it just felt psychologically right to me that Hannah would would flee her past both metaphorically but also geographically
0: Yeah, the book felt rather wide ranging as to the United Kingdom in a way that I think often psychological crime thrillers don't because they tend to take place in, you know, just one specific location and even to, uh, emphasize, you know, the claustrophobic or, or stationary aspects of Mm. existence. And because we have this before taking place in Oxford and then Hannah herself comes from the South, right. Even, even further South. And then you have all these students who are dotted around The country, right, and then the present day uh, parts are taking place in Edinburgh. I I just, I got, I, I feel like a more holistic sense of the UK than I'm used to in a book, in in a really good way. I, I appreciated that. It feels like this book has a wider scope than some of your.
1: Yeah, definitely a departure for me because I'm, you know, I'm more known, I think, for writing sort of locked room mysteries or at Mm -hmm. least very sort of closed stage mysteries, and this one isn't in the same way. It probably still has a closed cast of suspects, pretty much. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. But yeah, you're completely right. I got to gallivant about the UK a little bit more than I normally do, which was quite fun.
0: <laughs> I mean, in a way, I wondered if it wasn't an unconscious reaction to the fact that none of us has been able to do that <laughs> for the last two years. It's like you kind of got a little bit of your cabin fever out by traveling around in your head <laughs> in, I, think in your
1: it, I think it probably was, actually. You know, it was written... It very much was a book that came out of lockdown. I was imagining it, you know while i was homeschooling my kids and all of us were confined to you know essential journeys only mm. And so, yeah, I think there was a very real kind of desire to get out, visit places that I hadn't been to for years and, and, you know, thinking where would I go if I could go anywhere now? So absolutely, that was definitely an influence. But I think also the kind of the locked room claustrophobia element of the plot comes in the before sections when Mm -hmm. Hannah is at college because, you know, I didn't go to Oxford. I went to Manchester, which is a huge university with, like, multiple campuses. And I think one of the things that I was really conscious of conveying was the very different uh, experience of being in a college situation where, you know, often Oxford colleges only take 300 students. So, you know, everybody, like everybody knows you. They all know your business. You're all living in the college, studying in the college, eating in the college. It's a very close knit, claustrophobic community in a way that I don't think anywhere else really is in the UK, certainly. And so in a way, it was sort of having the present day section be a little bit more free ranging was sort of a way to contrast against that, I think.
0: Yeah. Way to balance it out a little bit. Definitely. Well, I was going to mention the Oxford of it all, of course. You reference a number of books and movies in this story, I think much more than you usually do. And that's because your protagonist, Hannah, works in a bookshop. So it it allows you to (laughs) uh, bring up lots of books, which I'm sure you quite enjoyed as a book lover. It was fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I enjoyed that too. And early on, you mentioned Brideshead Revisited, Gaudy Night, His Dark Materials all of which take place on posh university campuses, similar to your Pelham College. Um, Later on, you referenced Brideshead Revisited again, in in addition to Chariots of Fire. And of course, it's not just Dorothy Sayers who set a mystery on a university campus with Gaudy Knight. There's Miss Pym Disposes by Josephine Tay, which is one of my absolute favorites. The Moving Toy Shop by Edmund Crispin, along with a lot of other Crispins, The Case of the Gilded Fly. I mean, his series detective is an Oxford Don. So you could argue that all of his mysteries are basically set on a campus or at least campus adjacent. The Colin Dexter's Moore series, which Catherine actually particularly loved. Uh, the Secret History by Donna Tart, which I believe we touched on in our first interview. I know you're a big fan of Absolutely. that book as well my point in mentioning all these titles i promise i do have a point is <laughs> that it reminded me um of something that the literary critic and theorist Allison Light wrote about i was actually fortunate enough to interview her recently and as i was reading your book i remembered this point she made about how christie didn't actually set any of her books on a university campus. The closest she got was Cat Among the Pigeons, which of course is an all girls boarding school, but the students there are are much younger, of course, than college Mm. age. And, Allison Light's point was that Christy is actually much more anchored to the middle classes than she ever gets credit for. She's very much not obsessed with toffs and the aristocracy and whatnot, even though that's what some people, some more casual fans of hers come away thinking. That's a little bit of the cliche sometimes that people have in mind when they think about Christy. But I also think to a large extent that she, like all good writers, simply wrote what she knew. <laughs> and... Yeah. We, of course, know that she didn't attend university or for that matter, any school whatsoever, other than a few pensionants in, in France when she was a teenager. So I was curious. I did you know, do a little bit of research to see. I was like, did Ruth go to Oxford? Because you really do such a great job, I think of conveying what it feels like to enter this sort of high stakes environment where there's so much pressure on these young people to succeed and how claustrophobic it really can feel. So I wanted to ask you about that.
1: I was just going to chime in and say, I completely agree. And I I think that's the reason why Christy never did a campus novel because she didn't go to university and probably didn't trust herself to write about it. Whereas I think she does tackle girls schools because by the time she wrote that novel her daughter was at boarding Mm -hmm. school and I think that's why it's a later novel Mm. it's not one that would have been reflective of her own childhood it's one that is set at the same time as her her daughter's childhood so I think it's exactly as you say it's not a world that she knew and probably you know I think as well university at that time probably felt much more of a closed sort of circle you know much more remote and kind of ivory towered um but no as you as you rightly say I I didn't go to Oxford and in fact I wrote a little bit about that in the acknowledgements at the end because it does seem there's so many wonderful books and films set at Oxford that it does feel extraordinarily arrogant to decide to do one when you didn't in fact attend and I made I made a decision not to apply to Oxford and I'm still sort of figuring that out kind of 20 years later why why I didn't go that route and I you know I've given myself lots of different answers and I think at the time it was a sort of weird reverse snobbishness um Mm. I kind of felt it would be sort of it would be ivory towers and posh people and I felt that I didn't want to kind of be part of that but a lot of my friends did go to Oxford as did my sister and it is an incredible experience. It's a beautiful town. I'm someone who loves historic buildings. I'm obsessed with architecture as people who've read all my books probably know. And I think there's a part of me that will always be jealous of the fact that they got to walk through those you know incredibly ancient doors and got to you know sleep in those rooms and go up those staircases and so this book in a way was my excuse to kind of wallow in that in that slight jealousy and to spend a lot of time phoning up old friends and you know asking them for their reminiscences and getting the minutiae of Oxford life off them which was really fun it was sort of like interview my mates which was yeah a nice thing to do
0: Well, I want to just read out one section because I think it's representative of the work that you're doing in the book. And that's interesting to me that you're it's almost like you're working out something personal to yourself that, you know, this is something that you chose not to do and maybe feeling wistful about that. Because you could, I mean, there's such specificity here, even though Pelham obviously is not a real college, but it just it feels very real. And I think it goes a long way toward the power, I think, of that story in the past and what happens. To to April and Hannah and everyone else. So this is what you write... It was true, Pelham wasn't the most rabidly academic of the Oxford colleges, but it certainly leaned that way, rather than towards the sporting drinking culture of some of the others. On a scale from work hard to play hard, Pelham definitely prized the first more. But nor was it the most meritocratic of the colleges. As Ryan had pointed out, it had a high intake of private school students, higher than the already high Oxford average. Taken together, the two made for a weirdly febrile atmosphere that combined academic privilege with a panicked realization that no one here was getting a leg up. There were no kindly teachers to help with cramming or hint at which papers to revise. Here, there were no extra classes, no mommy or daddy to organize after-school tutors and emergency summer school. You were on your own sink or swim. And Hannah had no idea which camp she would be in. And what I just love about that is I think a, a big through line of this book is what happens to Hannah. And this is not going to be a spoiler because it really has nothing to do with the mystery, but given that we're alternating between before and after, we're presented with this character in Hannah of someone who has made good and gotten into Oxford and is making the plunge, placing herself among all of these more posh and upper-class seeming people and doing brilliantly, really seemingly at the start of some sort of an amazing career. We don't even know what, she doesn't know what either, but we we know, she's going to be brilliant. And then that gets contrasted with, with, with where she is in the after sections. And of course, the fact that a murder took place is part of the the reason as to why that's happened. But I think that there's a, a universality in there in terms of expectations not lining up with reality when one goes off to college or just starts something and has such dreams and, and goals that don't necessarily pan out. And, and I think that also is something that you really um, explore here side by side with the mystery that unfolds.
1: Yeah, because it's, well, it's, it, 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 all of that is exactly right, but also it's not—it's not just Hannah's experience. You know, mm-hmm. Hannah is feeling it more more sharply than some of the others in her friendship group. I think because she she drops out. It's a, not really a spoiler to say this after April's death. So yeah. she never has. She doesn't finish her course. She doesn't have a degree. She's not able to go for jobs that require a university degree. So she she's sort of quite aware that her life has been shaped by that choice to drop out but in a very real sense her husband Will is in the same boat in spite of the Mm -hmm. fact that he finished his degree and he's not happy with his job he you know he thought like many of us did when we were 21 22 that he was going to go out and change the world and do great things and actually he's ended up doing nine to five in order to pay their mortgage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ryan, for different reasons, he's had a really debilitating um, stroke as a very young man. And his life has taken a turn that he never expected and he's had to come to terms with. So I think part of book is I suppose the fact that it it's written in two in these two sort of before and after sections and for me they were the t- probably the two big turning points in my life you know when the point where I left home and went to university and had for the first time in my life really complete freedom to decide who I was and certainly the university I went to which is Manchester that freedom was you know, it was pretty daunting because it was a huge university. You really Mm. could completely reinvent yourself. You could get lost, you could get found, you could do whatever you wanted. And then the other big turning point was in my thirties when I had my first kids. And I think for lots of us, you know, I'm aware, I'm incredibly lucky to be doing my dream job and I feel very lucky about that. But it's often a point in our lives where we look back and take stock and think, huh, you know, did the dreams that I had when I was 18 really match up with what ended up happening? And I think certainly for Will, definitely for Ryan, maybe even to an extent for Emily, that probably didn't happen. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, I guess it was sort of trying to, to look at those two sort of life milestones in a life. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, and I I appreciated with Emily, especially because she is extremely ambitious and driven when she is a first year student in university. And then we do see her in the present day. And she has made good on that. She's probably the only one who really has. But it's not as though she's living a dream life either.
1: Yeah, she's um, she's she becomes an academic she's working in mathematics which is what she's always wanted to do she's brilliant but you know she's dealing with academic politics with you know tenure with all of the kind of boring stuff that adults Mm -hmm. have to deal with and yeah there's definitely there's a kind of I wouldn't say there's a be careful what you wish for thread running through the book but there's definitely a sort of dreams versus reality thread.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we all have to make sacrifices no matter what we end up doing either to, you know, our personal lives or our career, or usually I think just sacrifices in both because everything is complicated and and it just, the the way things pan out is never exactly as we expect. And I think that's a hard lesson that everyone has to learn. And um, yes, it's it's true. It's not just Hannah where we're seeing that play out. It's really in all five of these people and of course the ultimate tragedy is that in the sixth it never got to play out (laughs) so um i just thought that that was all really interestingly handled and that's sort of the big chill aspect of it too and and there is a bit of you know wistfulness that i think is sprinkled throughout the book uh as we're comparing where these characters have ended up to where they started and that felt very true to life (laughs) It is time to talk about Breadbox. As I've mentioned a few times now, there is so much to find on this streaming platform, and I'm so thrilled to be able to offer a 50% discount on the first month of your monthly subscription if you are listening to this in the US or Canada. You just have to use promo code Agatha. And when you do, you too will be able to taste in the delights of not just Agatha Christie content, but so much more mystery content. There is seriously just mystery upon mystery upon mystery for your delectation over at BritBox. One of those non-Christie mysteries that I really enjoy is the Vera series. It stars the fabulous Brenda Blethin as the titular Vera That's Detective Chief Inspector Vera Stanhope to you. This is based on the series of books written by Anne Cleaves, not to be confused with Anne of Cleaves, I'm just a big fan. I came into it because I knew that I love Brenda Bluthen, quite honestly, but this is exactly the sort of quality mystery content that you and I can enjoy over at BritBox. So again, head on over to BritBox.com and use coupon code Agatha, A-G-A-T-H-A for 50% off the first month of your monthly subscription in the US and Canada. That's a limited time offer. So what are you waiting for? Sign up and start watching a ton of mysteries not to dwell on the Oxford of it all too much but I have mentioned this on the podcast before believe it or not as an American I actually spent a term at Oxford when I was an (gasps) undergrad
1: Did you? So, how did you feel I conveyed it? Were you, You, did you spot any bloopers?
0: (laughs) No, no bloopers whatsoever. So, here's the funny thing. So, I was essentially an exchange student. I went to uh, Stanford University undergrad, and Stanford has had a house. At Oxford for a long time. I actually don't know how, how old the program is, but they essentially have this house, which is several old row houses that were stitched together so that the, the house where all the students are is just this crazy patchwork with like staircases leading to nowhere. And it's just like this, this ridiculous house that we all live in, which is lovely. And I actually, to this day, made some of my best friends at Stanford during my Oxford term. The drawback to that is that not being housed with the British students or the students from the UK at their colleges meant that there was always a major divide, as I'm sure you can imagine. And I mean, especially as portrayed in your book, if you're not a living, you know, among all of these people who who are in this rather closed off college together, even if you're going into the dining hall and eating with them and trying to have conversations, it, I, I never yeah, really you're felt You're always like an outsider,
1: was, quite literally, yeah. because you're not inside the college. Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> Plus we're American, you know, there was definitely a lot of eye rolling going on. I, um, <laughs> I, I apologize I so on
1: behalf of my people.
0: <laughs> no, it. you know, I mean, we, we Americans are kind of obnoxious as well. It's fine. It's fine. We deserve half of the eye rolls that we get. But I did a bunch of courses at St. Catherine's College, actually. And then Maudlin was the college that we were most affiliated with. But so it's really funny. You have a moment in this book where Hannah actually scales a fence and ends up tearing her jeans and even maiming herself slightly. Yes. (laughs) Because she's trying to get in. She has a much better reason for this. So I literally did that at Oxford. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, However, for me, it happened on May Day. There's a really big tradition at Oxford on on May Day and specifically May Day Eve where, not to put too fine a point on it, a lot of people just go out and get extremely drunk yeah. um, and just sort of carouse. And I, let's just say I embraced that tradition and <laughs> I st- scaled a fence for some reason and completely ripped, I mean, from ankle almost to thigh, a pair oh. of jeans And uh, I believe even came into a class the next day, still a little worse for wear. And it was very obvious what had happened. Slightly (laughs) hobbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, no, I mean, I think you you absolutely captured so much. My favorite memory that you brought up for me was just the term JCR, the junior common room in the college, which is sort of like the student lounge. But our Stanford house also had a JCR and there would always be tea in the JCR every afternoon. Um, I
1: I really struggled with how much translation to do for all of that, because certainly, you know, when we were at university, they would just phrases that you learned in the first week that were completely foreign to you and then suddenly you found them tripping off your tongue but I think for anybody who hasn't been to a particular because it's not even all universities it's a very specific type of university has a junior common room and a senior common room and I was like oh but you know it wouldn't be plausible for these characters to be spelling all of this stuff out because it would just seem normal to them but clearly not everybody reading this is gonna so I'm glad that you know you appreciated the work that I did. In, in inserting
0: those terms, <laughs> I, I, I totally did. And it's funny, I was going to ask you is that an Oxford specific thing? So it's not, there are JCRs in other universities. In the UK. I suspect
1: as well. it probably originated at Oxford and Cambridge, but certainly I was at Manchester. Uh, my um now husband was at Sheffield. They all had J all of the halls of residence had JCRs and senior common rooms, which is the like the version for the for the grown-ups and the mm-hmm. postgrads. Yeah. So it was a it was a pretty well known term in the red brick universities, which is I guess sort of our equivalent of the Ivy League. Mm-hmm. Um but I think in many other universities, they won't have existed and people won't know what the term means.
0: <laughs> well, the one detail that you included, which I would have been very, very angry with you if you had not, it would have been quite remiss. And, and I'm so glad that you did was the kebab fans.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> the Oxford kebab fan.
0: The kebab vans. And I'm I'm sure those are at other universities in the UK as well. But I mean, kebab vans is something that we do not have in the US, at least not in exactly the same way. And oh my God, the kebab vans at Oxford were a a daily part of my experience. I mean, I I feel like I lived outside of those kebab vans for a while. I always think
1: there's something particularly sinister about any food establishment where you are possibly not going to be able to complain in person the next day if you get food poisoning. (laughs) Like anyone that can... sticks and disappear uh that's a that's a red flag um and the funny thing is that's actually one thing that i is really specific to oxford i mean i'm sure other university towns have it but manchester where i went has amazing kebab restaurants and an incredibly famous what's called the curry mile which is like the pakistani and bangladeshi kind of um area of town just has mm-hmm. this huge long stretch of incredible restaurants but they because just because I guess like real estate is cheaper there is more space in a bigger city they didn't have vans in the same way and I remember going to visit friends at Oxford and just seeing the snaking queues coming out of these kebab vans and being like really really do you want to eat a kebab which is like you know the Donner kebabs are like notorious if they're not kept properly ref- Refrigerated for mm-hmm. being like quite dangerous if they're not properly cooked um, from what's essentially a glorified caravan. But everybody did and they're, you know, apparently incredibly good and survived. So Oxford kebab vans are obviously, uh, yeah, being unfairly maligned.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, no, I mean, I have so many memories of just, yeah, these poorly lit vans where you're just watching them shave off the meat from inside the truck. It's like 2 a.m. You're just like, yes, just give it, just please, I need, <laughs> I need some meat. Um, it's, yeah. yes, it's, it's a, a bit dodgy but yeah I mean I guess you know we, we've all lived to tell the tale so <laughs>
1: <laughs> and probably have cast iron digestions because of it it set you up for life
0: so <laughs> yeah. so well done from from this American with limited experience of Oxford I you you took me back and um I, I hit a I, couple I of things
1: one thing that I didn't manage to get in, which annoyed me, was I, I didn't manage to get the bikes in, which is such an omnipresent part of every all the student cycle everywhere. The bikes are just the bane of everybody's life because they're constantly chained up places. They're always being stolen. They're blocking routes. And just somehow there was never quite space in what was already quite a tight plot and quite a long book to introduce Hannah having a bike. So she never got one. And I I feel a bit sad for her that she didn't get to cycle around Oxford. So sorry, Hannah.
0: Well, you know what? That's still rang true for me because it's really funny, but that is the only aspect I think of going from Stanford to Oxford that did not involve a culture shock because Stanford is very specifically a biking campus like crazily. So in the U S like I had a bike and I'm, I am so not a biker, but like everyone has a bike at Stanford. It's a mess also. Yes. I mean, so many bike accidents. I have fallen so many times at Stanford on my bike and witnessed horrible collisions and gotten my bike stolen. And it's just a disaster. And it's, and now that you say it, it's true. People did bike at Oxford, but I think I didn't even clock that because I was so used to biking so culture and didn't have one while I did my term at Oxford. So, uh, that was okay with me. <laughs>
1: I'm let off. <laughs> and maybe I spared Hannah a horrible bike accident. So oh my God.
0: <laughs> so I just wanted to pause a moment to tell you all about another podcast that I think you will all enjoy. It's called Play On Podcasts, and these are epic audio adventures that reimagine Shakespeare's timeless tales featuring original music composition and the voices of award-winning actors. Each episode explores plays from Macbeth to A Midsummer Night's Dream in a way that you can actually understand it, and it's created specifically for the podcast form by some of America's most exciting playwrights, directors, and composers, and performed by Stage and Screen's Best. Check out their current season of King Lear, which stars Emmy winner Keith David and Severance star Trammell Tillman. Hear Shakespeare like you've never heard before. And we all know Agatha Christie loved her Shakespeare, right? Subscribe to Play On Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. So there are, of course, a number of Christie-ish elements in this book, as there always are in your books. One of the reasons I love your books as much as I do I wanted to mention a few of them in a non-spoilery way. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So first off, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but this is an investigation into a crime from the past, you know, of 10 years ago too. And what could be more Christy than that? In, in the podcast right now, we're at the end actually of our review of Christy's novels. I just published the Postern of Fate. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. Not episode. one of her
1: strongest ones, in my opinion.
0: but uh... <laughs> no. No, So we just really have Curtain and Sleeping Murder left. And of course, a lot of her later books are very much investigations into crimes from the past and even Five Little Pigs, one of her best is an investigation into the past. I mean, did you know early on that you wanted to do this kind of before after situation where it was these characters looking 10 years back because it really does make the investigation it, it introduces a lot of challenges I would have to say narratively to be able to have revelations 10 years on rather than just simply having the investigation take place right after the murder happened
1: mm, well I'd already done in the lying game I'd already done something similar in terms of having I mean it's very the lying game is very different in terms of there's much more withholding of information the people involved basically know what happened although some of them have pieces that they need to slot into place so it's not an investigation in the same way whereas this is much more five little pigs in terms of going back. There's uh, Elephants Can Remember as well, which is another one that I love, you know, going back, talking to people, sifting through the reliability or otherwise of of their memories. But I think that I allowed myself to have my cake and eat it in a way that Christy didn't quite so much. She, with most of her kind of past time investigation books um, keeps the narrative pretty strictly to the present Mm -hmm. um, and relies on conversations and memories to evoke the past whereas I did let myself have a very strong past tense narrative as you as you point out in your introduction the first probably two-thirds of the book is pretty evenly split flashing Mm -hmm. back and forth between the present and the past so I guess that made it a lot easier because there wasn't that sense of you're constantly relying on third party sort of testimony and anecdotes to convey what happened I sort of allowed myself to go straight back into the past and and plunge people right into it but I think I'm fascinated by memory generally right from my first book in a dark dark wood which is also another past present book although Mm -hmm a very different time scale it's you know someone at the end of a weekend contrasting their memories of what actually happened with where they are in the present um so that Much takes place in 48 right, hours right. but i'm i'm fascinated by memory and by perception and by what we think we've seen versus what we've actually seen versus what we persuade ourselves that we've seen many years later when we've rehearsed um events over and over and there was a fascinating this, this absolutely amazing um I can't remember if it's a podcast or a radio program all about memory and they did this experiment where they asked people where they had been on 9/11 and what they'd been doing because it was this you know obviously it's one of those points where everybody remembers what happened mm-hmm. um, and they they interviewed people, I think it was annually, and asked them. And then this has been going on for, I guess, like 20 years now. And some people's accounts have changed a lot, like new details introduced, contradictory details. But the fascinating thing is that when they're, some of them have been confronted with what they said originally in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And they don't say, oh, I must have made a mistake. I must have misremembered. They believe that their original self was in fact the wrong one and that their current memory is the correct one and they will go to some lengths to explain the discrepancy and explain why you know well I probably was still in shock I wasn't thinking clearly I would have got it you know whereas very clearly like you know 20 years later your memory is going to be less reliable and every time we recall a memory and tell a story we remember it slightly differently And that new version is what gets recorded and pulled out next time. So it's sort of like a a process of um, a long game of telephone with ourselves, I guess. Um, And this book, it doesn't go into that in sort of enormous detail. In Adult Wood was much more sort of obviously about memory and the tricks that memory can play. But it's definitely, I think, it's a ten-year gap allows you to play with things like that and to play with the the fact that your perspective changes and evolves. You know, I think Hannah one of the things that's changed over the 10 years is that john neville who has been this kind of almost this bogeyman to her this person that she's kind of completely terrified of that fear recedes a, a bit as she as she gets older and more self assured and and more confident and then when he finally dies it, it disappears altogether Uh, which allows her to look at events from the past in a sort of different way. Um, So yeah, having, having that time gap definitely allows you to do sort of interesting things with comparing how you see things in one time frame versus how you might feel about it many years later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all want memory to be a simple recording device and want to believe that, but it just isn't and yeah. um, i think you know in a way i think that goes to the the heart of mystery when we do these breakdowns on our podcast of christy mysteries we talk about the world as it appears to be versus the world as it actually is and you know the frustrating thing is that we almost can't access the world as it actually is After it happens, right? And then the longer that we, you know, the farther away we get from that moment, the the more we might change it. Like you said, I love that idea of playing a game of telephone with ourselves. I think that is absolutely what happens. But it's quite unnerving to be reminded that our perception is a filter right. And, and is actually affecting the way that we receive the world. I mean, that's what lies at the heart of optical illusions, right? Like I'm always a bit unnerved when I'm like, oh, right. My eye is right now in the present, not even bringing memory into the equation, but my eyes are not necessarily seeing what is actually there because my brain is already trying to quote unquote, correct for yeah. what it's seeing. And, you know, we're just constantly doing that. And that process is definitely coming into play, when it comes to memory. And yeah, it's interesting. I never thought about it, but Christy Christy does not really, she's not doing the contrast as much because even though she is investigating past crimes, it is always from a single perspective of the present. Looking back into the past, she never actually goes to the past. It is always a sort of backward looking investigation as opposed to, okay, well, here's our snapshot of when it happened. And then here is what's happening in the present. And the reader is actually the one who can compare the two.
1: Yeah, no, very much. And I think it's actually something that I think because some of the adaptations have chosen to go into the past it's Mm -hmm. quite surprising when you then read the books you're like oh no they never there's a really good adaptation of five little pigs which dwells quite heavily in the in the past section they actually film it and you see it all unfold and I love it it's a it's a really it's a really good version but it takes away something from the fact that in the book you're very aware that you're getting this very filtered version mm-hmm. and that every every version that everybody's giving you is slightly different and slightly less accurate and when you see it on film with your own eyes you're getting the truth because that's the only real way you can film it I sort of was able to have my cake and eat it because you do, you see the past, but you see it through Hannah's eyes. So you're aware that even the past you're getting is a sort of filtered version, exactly as you said. It doesn't have 10 years of delay, but you're still seeing it with Hannah's preconceptions and prejudices and concerns overlaid. Hopefully that's something the reader's aware of throughout.
0: Yeah, there are so many ways that Christy can be captured on film and TV, but then there are significant ways in which she cannot. And I think that is absolutely one of them. And I've said this before, but there's there's no book in which she does does that more brilliantly than Five Little Pigs because we never actually see Caroline and Emius Krell with our own eyes. We only get the accounts from all these Rashomon-like accounts from other people. But you finish that book and you know who they are. Or you at least feel like yeah. you know who You've they are. You've
1: created a sort of composite picture of all of the different versions of them. No, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and they're are you know two of her more memorable characters in the in the whole canon, and we never actually <laughs> are presented with them face to face, so to speak. Just brilliant how she does that. Well, it's really funny that you you mentioned Elephants Can Remember just a couple of minutes ago. And I thought that I was going too far with this. And I, I was not going to bring up what I felt like was a little bit of an allusion to Elephants Can Remember. But um, being very nonspecific here, at the end of the book, in your very climactic ending, there is a character who is thinking about making it look as though two other characters who are standing on a cliff (laughs) Um, that one of them has shot the other and then killed him or herself. And I was like, well, that feels like a very very elephants can remember sort of a situation. Were were you thinking about that at all when you wrote it? Or am I just reading into things? Not
1: consciously, but it is a book that I have read more than once. (laughs) And, you know, I think as as a mystery writer, the difficulty with doing stuff is that Christie's done so many things so well and written so many books. It's very difficult to do anything that she hasn't already done so she I'm sure it must have been in the back of my subconscious um, right. because you're right now you mention it it's a very similar set
0: up. Right. Um, you know, but Christy no, I, I wasn't
1: I wasn't paying homage to her in that scene. I wish I had been.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Well you know what you you can be now. Now you can say that you are. I'll claim it. Like... <laughs> yeah that was my elephants can remember homage. And you know Christy doesn't own a copyright on murder suicide atop a cliff. So it's
1: no, fine. thankfully. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then the final Christie ish thing and, and I will have to be very general about this because I don't want to spoil the solution of course to the puzzle that you have here. But there 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 is what what I will call a, a temporal obfuscation where the timing of events leading up to the murder doesn't necessarily play out the way it might seem to at first glance. Again, this is very much a the world as it appears to be versus the world as it actually is situation. And there are so many Christie's, both short stories and novels, which hinge on that sort of obfuscation. The brilliant thing about it is that once we're told what happened, it feels so simple and so seemingly obvious when we're on the other side of it. It's that retrospective inevitability. And in that solution, I have to imagine that you were somewhat inspired by Christy in a general way.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think out of all of my books, the how done it is the most christie ish of all of them maybe the woman in cabin 10 as well is it has some sort of a similar sort of twistiness to the solution but yes it, there's a, a sort of sleight of hand element to how it plays out but it was pretty directly inspired by christy not specifically necessarily by any of her plots although i agree she does do similar things in a couple of her books but I think what she does so well is to make you take for granted something that you should not have taken for granted and then at the end she goes well of course that wasn't true And you're like oh but i i took that for granted (laughs) you know it's like it i let's not say which book just in case there's one person in the world who hasn't read it but you know the the fact that you take for granted that one person did the murder you know that is not something you should have taken for granted but you you do because she leads you into it and then spoiler alert it's it's more than one so yeah i think i was definitely trying to pull off something similar where where something that you take for granted is not the
0: case. I felt that too. It's interesting that you say that the solution is your most Christy-ish. I totally agree with that. I think the woman in cabin ten has a lot of Christy-ish trappings to you know the the, the setup and the way that the story plays out and even the solution. But this one, when I got to the end, I was like, oh, that was very Christy, but without <laughs> Christy-ish trappings, Since again, we she didn't set anything at a, a university like this, so I really appreciated that. Though it came as a welcome surprise at the end.
1: Thank you. I'm very glad. It's always fun when someone else can kind of see you working. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you said in our first interview that your favorite, Christie is always changing. I believe that you actually cited Nemesis as a favorite back then. At the time, we were very far away from covering it, but we have since covered it. And it's actually one of my favorites as well. I, I just really, really adored that novel upon rereading. Not that it's perfect by any means, but it's really, really just such a great late career Christie. I'm curious if you have a new recent favorite Christie or one that you've been thinking about or had recently read. And if not, that's fine too. But I I couldn't not ask you uh, about your thoughts on Christie titles.
1: Well, funnily enough, I did another interview today in which I was asked for my favorite Christie, and I've sort of swung back to saying, and then there were none just because it's so cleverly structured. And mm-hmm. I recently got to make a kind of bucket list trip to Burr Island, um, which is the oh, yeah. I- I- island hotel where Christy stayed many times and wrote many of her books. And, and then there were none is supposedly one of them. Evil and Under the Sun
0: also, right? Uh- Evil, Evil yeah, under Evil the Under sun. the
1: Sun I mean, yeah, yes yeah. which is set on an island hotel very and actually one of the adaptations was filmed at Bear Island mm-hmm. um, so I sort of swung back to saying that but I was asked today and it was specifically about Marple and I did then I did cite Nemesis so there you go it's uh, I mean it's not a perfect book by any means it has some quite some opinions very of its time some, mm-hmm. some things that you would want to argue with Christy if you were meeting her over a cup of coffee but I think where it is really moving is about old age and the aging process and the fact that Miss Marple is trapped in this sort of body that's getting frailer and frailer, but her mind is still as sharp as a bacon slicer as Sir Henry Clithering has it. So <laughs> yeah, I it's definitely, it's definitely. Up there for me, among the top. But yeah, I do, I do love Five Little Pigs as well. So I'd say there's more a, a canon of my favourite Marples and uh, and Poros probably.
0: You no, know, I, I, so I love Nemesis as an answer because I, it's not one that we get often and having just re, re-read it, I would put it right up there too, especially because I think it does get unfairly neglected. So Nemesis is a great answer. I'm curious, you know, you even alluded to the fact, I think that this book to me felt particularly filmic, actually. And I think in a way, like when you were saying how Christy doesn't necessarily convey when she's talking about her past crimes, she doesn't show us the past crime. And that's a change that has to be made when her books are being adapted. This book, to me, feels particularly adaptable, as do so many of your other books. So I have to ask, is there anything on the horizon in terms of film or TV adaptations for any of your books, this one or or any of your previous ones?
1: They're almost all still under option uh or or some of them have been bought outright um and the it girl i think i'm allowed to say this i'm never completely sure what i'm what i'm allowed to say and what i'm not is under offer i think i can say that so hopefully you know it's got as good a chance of, of, as any of them i do think that books with split timelines are quite hard to film just because of the practicalities of do you try and age the actors up 10 years mm. or do you do you go with different actors and and both solutions have their have their disadvantages although 10 years isn't a ridiculous you know I think the same actor could play their 20 year old self versus their 30 year old self I didn't change that much I I didn't change that much until my 30th birthday um (laughs) so yeah who knows but yeah it's uh it is under offer and I would love to see a an adaptation of it so yeah fingers crossed
0: I would too. And it was certainly doable in Anatomy of a Scandal. I don't know if you saw that yes. recently. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That brilliant, was a similar, brilliant book and really good adaptation as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and that was, I think about 10 years and they actually made the decision to do different actors, which I, which I thought was interesting, but it worked. It, it, yeah. it worked because they, they cast it well.
1: Yeah. No, they, I agree. They, they pulled it off. So yeah, with the right, I think with the right director and the right casting director, it could work. <laughs>
0: And then my final question, I have to ask, are you working on a new book? Is there going to be a book for 2023?
1: <laughs> there will be a book, for, unless I deliver it and my editor recoils so hideously <laughs> that, um, that it turns out not to be that book. But no, there will be a book for 2023. I'm working on it at the moment, but it's a, a slightly too ugly duckling stage for me to say anything about it. And I also don't have a title. I have a possible title, but I don't want to say it in case it, it isn't the right one, so yeah that's probably all I can say but un- unless it turns out to be a real turkey which touch wood I, I don't I don't think it is it feels okay to me now there will be a, a 2023 Ruth Ware definitely
0: okay well ugly duckling in a turkey it sounds like there's lots of foul <laughs>
1: lots of birds <laughs> involved there are no birds at are, are in no- the traces of this book
0: <laughs> no birds hurt in the writing of this book I mean- <laughs> No, I totally get that. It's at that delicate stage where you, you, it's like the souffle that will just deflate if you talk about it before. And
1: also I think quite often, I don't really know what a book is about until, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know what it's about in a superficial sense in terms of, I know who the main character is, but I don't know what I'm trying to say until I get to the end. So I sort of feel I have to get there, decide what I was meaning by the whole thing. And then I can talk about it.
0: I totally get that, but I'm relieved to hear that it sounds as though we will have our Ruth Ware fix or uh
1: <laughs> fingers crossed yeah. Yeah, yeah
0: uh well congratulations on the it girl and uh, and also just your amazing output in general i mean i was of course joking about the year you took off i'm using air quotes there you can't the see yeah i but... twiddled
1: my thumbs <laughs> <laughs> as we all did <laughs>
0: yes yes but thank you so much for being on the podcast again you know as always i would encourage everyone to go out and buy the it girl especially at an independent bookstore near you either online or a brick and mortar shop. If you are making your way out in the world, just so thrilled to have you on again, Ruth.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kemper. It was such a pleasure, and yeah, I hope I can come on and fangirl about Christy sometime in the
0: future. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll have to make it a hat trick at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> thank
1: right, you, bye. Kemper. It was such a great interview.
0: Well, that was effortless in the best of ways, a little bit like reading one of Ruth Ware's books because she really is such an entertaining writer and boy, does she know her stuff. She often gets the Agatha Christie comparison. And I think actually that it's particularly apt for this book. So I hope that many of you will uh, go out and enjoy Ruth's book, Appetites Wedded by This Conversation. For our next episode, I am actually going to be covering a Poirot short story. That will be the third floor flat. Very few of these Poirot short stories left. So let's savor each and every one of them. There will, of course, also be a discussion of the David Suchet adaptation of that short story. If you would like more content, you can always head on over to the podcast Patreon account. That's over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I've included a link in the notes for this episode. June's episode was a deep-dive review of Why Didn't They Ask Evans, written and directed and minorly starring (laughs) Hugh Laurie. And in just a few days, I will be dropping the July episode, which is all about Giant's Bread by Mary Westmacott, the first Mary Westmacott novel Agatha Christie wrote. Very autobiographical, similar to Unfinished Portrait, the second Mary Westmacott that Agatha Christie wrote, which Catherine and I already covered in a Patreon episode, but a little more complicatedly and interestingly autobiographical, actually. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com and you can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And I would so appreciate a rating and or a review. It still helps other people find the podcast. I love hearing from you in any form, but particularly in the form of a rating or a review. I'll see you next time. Bye.